The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Thank you very much. So um, I'm just going to begin by introducing the panel, and then I will run through the format of the session. So to my right, uh, Professor Stanley Fish, who's based in two law schools in the United States, uh, Florida International and Cadoza. And I must say, when I was a young undergraduate at Oxford doing literary theory, it was Professor Fish's books that were um, given to us and made a great impression on us. So very good to have you here, Stanley. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, to my left, uh, Joanna Cavenna, who won the, uh, is a novelist, writer, and uh, among other accolades, won the Orange Award for her book, Inglorious, and uh, was cited by Granter as uh, one of the best British young novelists. So you're very welcome to Joanna. And on my far left, uh, Barry, Barry Smith, who is the founder of the, is it called the Institute for the Study of the Senses? No. Is that right? Center for the Study of the Senses at the Institute of Philosophy. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so that's what you are. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Barry, thank you very much. So uh, welcome to our panelists. And the, the question we're really getting at is whether there are anything like eternal abiding truths. You know, is there anything anymore that lasts forever in the world of ideas? Or is everything now just ephemeral, relative, used up, provisional, and so on. So that's the kind of the essence of the question we're getting at. Are there some things which last forever? So for example, we'll be talking about the nature of truth. Is truth eternal? Or is it really, even the notion of truth is that limited? You know, is it time to give up on the idea that there are eternal truths, values, ideals, and so on? So that's the, that's the kind of the question around which we're going to pivot. So without further ado, Stanley, can I come to you first? And, uh, Give us your opening shot, please. Thank you. Uh, let me preface it with a line from one of my least favorite poets, Robert Browning. Uh, but he has provided me uh, with a gift, and I will take advantage of it. The line, which some of you will know, is, A man's reach should exceed his grasp, else what's a heaven for? Uh, I want to take the question of eternal truths um, and perhaps uh, damp it down a bit uh, and make it more mundane and everyday and turn it into a question about interpretation. 
And one of the questions that uh, was set to us uh, is, does meaning change over time? Uh, which, you, as you will see, is a small, uh, more variant of the question, are there eternal truths? Uh, the answer to the question, does meaning change over time, is no. Meaning does not change over time. What changes is the successive specifications we give of meaning. That changes. But if meaning really did change over time, this would mean that interpretation had no object. For interpretation to have an object, it must be the case that the object stands still, as it were, uh, awaiting its correct description and account. And if the meaning changed every time the interpretation changed, then there would be no object, and interpretation would simply be a game of anything goes. And we don't uh, want that. I've spent most of my, half of my academic life trying to figure out what Milton's Paradise Lost means. I now spend a great deal of time trying to figure out what the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution means, the Gun Control Amendment. And in both cases, there have been innumerable and successive attempts to approximate the meaning. Those attempts are opposed to one another. There have been revolutions in interpretation, but I would contend that through all those revolutions, all of the participants in the debates are seeking the same thing, the correct and true account. Will they achieve it? Well, as individuals, we always feel that we have achieved the true and correct account. When I open up a page of Paradise Lost, the meanings that I see leap out at me, and they leap out at me in a way that suggests that they are A, objective, and B, indubitable. Uh, but if I were to change my, as I have, change my understanding of what Paradise Lost means, I would still be in, be in the same condition of certainty, but the content of my certainty would have changed. I would still know what all of these words mean, but I would now think they meant something different than what I thought 10 or 15 years ago. But the condition of being certain of the interpretive uh, conclusions you have reached never leaves you. Now, as an institutional project, the project by, let's say, the, uh, the, the uh, excuse me, the project by the members of the literary profession or the, pro or the members of the legal interpretation profession. The uh, institutional project of interpreting meaning is, of course, interminable. Uh, and indeed, if it were the case that the meaning of paradise lost were agreed upon down to the most important detail, or the meaning of the Second Amendment were agreed upon, that would mean that both enterprises, trying to understand Paradise Lost or trying to understand the Second Amendment, were moribund. So that what must happen is, in the game of interpretation, what must happen is that the certainties that we now reach are only occasions and spurs uh, to another effort to determine the truth. Now, what this means is that the truth is always fleeing us. Uh, Milton said once in a prose tract, men must be always driven from the letter because they love so to stick there. What a great statement. And by that he meant that we always want to settle for the interpretation, specification of truth that now seems to us uh, to be apparent and satisfying. But if we do that, uh, we uh, are in a state of psychological congealment, and, and we must never, as he put it elsewhere, pitch our tents here, wherever here happens to be. 
And so what we always have to do is keep on going because the, the uh, lodestar uh, of our effort can never be captured in one of its instantiations. Uh, there's a theological name for this. The name for it is idolatry. And in, and in the business of interpretation, you should never commit idolatry. You should keep on going. The question that I was thinking of when uh, we came to this debate about eternal tales, and there was a question that we were also um, offered, which was this question of this idea of things being merely passing. So this idea that you know, meaning, interpretation, um, our moralities, our knowledge, they're merely passing, they're transient. And so I thought this is a very interesting conundrum that this kind of notion, it's again, it's a very old precept that the merely passing is somehow deficient and the perpetual and eternal and objective is somehow implicitly better and more desirable. And you could find, you know, from, I mean, the earliest theologies of which we know to the earliest philosophies, to Plato, um, these ideal forms, these realms where meaning is perfectible and eternal, and it does not change. This is a kind of better place. And so I wanted in this to kind of, to adopt a different position, which is to stick up for the passing, that it's not merely passing, the transient. Um, you know, this idea of the sick transit Gloria Mundi, you know, that the glory of the world just passes and we've got to kind of think elsewhere. We've got to think big rather than think in the contingent. Um, and this, again, it recurs through literature. We've heard about Milton. Um, you know, you get W.B. Yeats towards the end of his life in Sailing to Byzantium, talking about how he longs to be freed. He's fastened to a dying animal this kind of thing, you know, not knowing who he is, what he is, and he longs to be gathered into the artifice of eternity and to somehow escape, and never more will he sing of nature and of the kind of world below, this, this tangible, um, very sort of, to him, tragically fleeting world. Um, but you have this counter-tradition where those kind of perpetual, these eternal truths are somehow chilly and forbidding, and you get someone like Keats in Ode on a Grecian Urn, where he's talking about this urn that's abided through the ages and he thinks it's wonderful at one level and, you know, the, the song will ever continue and, you know, these characters are ineffable and, and endless. But then he says, but what of the kind of cold pastoral? And he says it sort of teases us out of thought as doth eternity. This thing that you just can't, there's something that's silent and to him somehow a nothing, a no place. You know, it, it doesn't permit, actually, of human life and engagement. Um, Tythonus, the Tennyson poem, is all about this withering slowly in this kind of silent place of eternity. So I would kind of side, if I had to pick a, a writer and side a little with them in this, I thought I'd side with D.H. Lawrence, who, you don't want to side with him on everything, but I think in this he's, he's pretty good. Um, and he has a funny phrase which might be relevant to this debate. He says, it seems impossible to get a saint or a philosopher or a scientist to stick to the simple truth. They're all renegades, he says, charmingly. Because um, a parson, he says, will only talk about heaven and a philosopher will only talk about infinity. But to him, nothing is important but life and the kind of contingent, beautiful, warm, bright life in which we reside. And that's what I'd like to stand up for in this debate. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm departing from this literary tradition. I'm going to say something a little uh, simpler, but really, I think, uh, quite close to things that Stanley wanted to say. So let's first of all go back to his idea of meaning and interpretation. Interpretation is our, our way of getting at 
the meaning of someone's words or what they said on an occasion of use. And the meaning is fixed by their intentions. So there is something that fixes meaning, the intention with which the speaker uttered those words. And interpretation is very difficult as to whether you always get at their intention, get at the meaning. So I agree with Stanley. Something fixes the meaning, not interpretation. Interpretation doesn't fix the meaning. It's a way of trying to get at it. Okay. But once we've got meaning on the table, we can then have this simplistic view, which needs to be made more complicated, but simple at first is the idea. Whether a, a statement is true depends on the meaning of the words you uttered and the way the world is. That meaning and truth are kind of related that way. Meaning of what you said and given the way the world is, they jointly determine what is true. But that's, that's only in the simplest version because sometimes, as, truth, as, as Stanley said, truth seem to outrun us. And if truth seem to outrun us, we should run to keep up. So it's not the case that we get at eternal truths by thinking there's a sentence we utter and we never need to change uttering it. We'll just keep saying it and it will always clang with the bell of truth eternally. It's not like that. We say today it's sunny in Hay this afternoon, but by tomorrow, if we want to report the very same thing, we can't use those words. We have to say it was sunny yesterday in Hay. We have to change our way of aiming to keep fixed on the same target. So it's a mistake to think that if there are things that we can say that remain true, that means we have to always use the same words to say them. Sometimes we have to run to keep up by changing our ways of talking. I agree with what Robert said as chair, that's, uh, and, and I think uh, Joanna said too, about the sort of chilly aspects of eternal truths. So, you know, the best candidates for eternal truths are ones where um, you, you see that things just couldn't have been otherwise. So when Pythagoras discovers that the square on the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides, he didn't make that true. It wasn't because he thought it, it was true. If it's true, it was always true. He just found a way of thinking about something which was now coming into light and was always the case. So I think there can be eternal truths that are just very difficult to say and very difficult to discover. Now, I'm sure we're going to get on to the topic of relativism, and there you have to be careful because some people will argue from the fact that we could mean many different things by our words, and so, you know, they could sometimes, what we're saying could sometimes be true, sometimes be false, and so people go for relativism about truth. But, but we have to be careful to, to understand again the relationship between meaning and truth. Here's a very simple analogy. Here's, a, here's an innocent relativism. It's in John Locke. So John Locke says, if you see a chess piece and you ask, did the chess piece move? You might be asking, did it move on the board? But if you ask whether the chess piece moved, you might be asking whether you took the, the chessboard from one room to another. And if you didn't take it from one room to another, you could still ask if the chess piece moved because it might be on board a ship that is sailing. And so relative to the ship, the chess piece hasn't moved, but relative to the shore, it has. Relative to the board, it hasn't. Relative to the shore, it has. And indeed, when the ship is at harbor, the chess piece is moving relative to the sun. 
So you've got to notice that the word move doesn't by itself select the question about what makes the statement the chess piece move true. It's always got to be relative to a frame of reference. And you'll get different answers depending on which frame of reference you fix. But that's an innocent kind of relativism. The debate. Theme one. So thanks, Barry. So at least kind of three different emerging notions of truth there. There's the kind of, let's call it temporal truth. You know, today the weather's sunny. I can't say that tomorrow because I'll have to change the tense in which I say it. So if you like temporal truth. Possibly some candidates for eternal truth like Pythagoras or often mathematical truths. Two plus two equals four today in the same way it did thousands and thousands of years ago. It might still do in the future. And then there's this third notion of relative truth, perhaps related to the first one, the temporal one, which is the, the chessboard, is, is it moving? Well, yes, on the ship, but no on the table kind of thing. So we've got at least three candidates there. And that's helpful because I, I want to kind of focus the panel a little bit more on this notion of um, whether there can be an eternal truth or not. And I know, Stanley, you, you wanted to dial down a little bit from that bigger question, but if I can kind of dial you back up again on it um, and maybe join... Uh, join up with something Barry said right at the beginning about truth and intention. And I know you wrote a book about, you know, whether we should always mean what we say and so on. And um, I guess the, the heart of the question is, you know, uh, if we mean something, does that mean it's eternally true, at least for us? So if, I'm, if I say, you know, I am um, uh, I'm a conservative and that's true for me, does that mean that has a sort of eternal truth insofar as I intend it and it's true for me? Or is that not the kind of thing that would count as an eternal truth at all? Do we need to be talking about mathematical truths only? I'm afraid I'm going to dial down again. It's an irresistible impulse. Uh, I agree so much with Barry that the key to thinking about interpretation and meaning is intention. That is, you want to figure out what the person or group or committee uh, had in mind. The problem with intention, uh, which is just the, the nature of the beast, um, is uh, that it's inaccessible, something of which Justice Scalia uh, complains in one of his famous pieces on interpretation, which means that you have to work at apprehending it, which means that it's an empirical activity, and that act empirical activities can fail. So therefore, although I believe that there is a true meaning related to the intention or intentions uh, of, those who, uh, of those who have spoken um, or written, that there is no methodology, uh, no checklist, which allows us to determine when that meaning has been arrived at. No, nothing independent of the debates that we engage in uh, ab about interpretation. Not only that, but to, to directly, I think, respond to your question, Robert, we can always be uncertain about our own intentions. I know I've had this experience, perhaps you have too. You're in the midst of a conversation with three or four people. You're speaking very vigorously about some matter uh, of apparent importance. And then you walk away, and five seconds later, you say to yourself, what did I mean by that? Why did I say that? At that moment, you would have, been, you would have become the observer of your own intentional performance, and you will start asking the same empirical questions about yourself that you might have asked about an author 500 years dead, although you may often feel, as I do, that you're better able to know what the author 500 years dead meant 
then you are able to know what you meant and certainly better able to know what an author 500 years dead meant than you know what your wife or husband meant this morning. Yeah. And how, just to follow up on that, how does that uh, differ or um, agree with the idea of unconscious intention? You know, unconsciously, you meant, you said something that you didn't mean to say consciously. Well, that's just a, a rival account of what an intention is. That it's a question of, uh, it's certainly possible if we take one reading of early Freud, uh, or middle Freud, it's certainly possible if we take uh, one reading to think that the unconscious intention is what produces uh, the meaning. And certainly his analysis of dreams uh, and many people's analysis of various scenes in Hitchcock movies uh, bears that out. But that's, that, that, all of that means is that when you've decided, as Barry and I have, or determined, as, 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 as we have, uh, that the answer to the old question, what does a text mean, is it means what its author or authors intend, saying that tells you very little in the way of methodological help. It doesn't even tell you who the intending author was. It might be your intention. Uh, it might be your unconscious, or it might be someone who is not there. Take that domestic moment when one partner says to another, that's not you, that's your mother speaking. Mm. Okay, thank you. A um, little bit of autobiography in there, Stanley? <laughs> no, anyway, we'll come More back to that. More than a bit. Okay. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Um, I still want to keep us up on the kind of high territory here as much as possible and uh, come back to this notion of eternal truth. And I know, Joanna, you were saying at the beginning, well, look, there is this bias in the history of ideas and the history of philosophy, certainly towards the eternal, to the abiding certainly in the Platonic tradition and so on. And you said, well, yes, but you know, there's also an argument for the passing, for the transient and so on. Can I, uh, can I kind of put, kick back onto the pitch, I suppose, this, this a priori question of, you know, is, you know, can there be an eternal truth? Is there an eternal truth? Well, I understand your preference for the non-eternal, but can, you know, does it make any sense anymore? I mean, Barry talks about mathematical truths. Are those the only truths that count as eternal these days for us? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting about mathematical truth, of course, because I think I'd contend with what Barry was saying. You know, this notion, that it seems to me that sort of simple transaction where you've drawn out something eternal using this system which you have your faith in. And obviously, whether you do or not, but this kind of, and that's the Pythagorean dream, of course, is that you do this, you divine, you know, the great sort of perpetuality, the eternality with your mass. And I mean, that's a big problem because these are all metaphorical. And these la this language with which we're discussing meaning, of course, is metaphorical too. And there's, you know, there's a particular language that's being used of interpretation, meaning that has a very specific tradition. And so these aren't themselves, it's a, it's a kind of maladjustment at one level, because obviously we're trying to talk about eternality with something that is 
contingent. And of course, I'm sure we'd all accept that that is intrinsically a paradox. And it's the Wittgenstein paradox, you know, how you, you can't set yourself beyond it. But I mean, in terms of this notion, I think it's interesting. I mean, of course, how would we know if there's eternal truth? We'd need ourselves to be eternal. But it's interesting that we have that philosophical, theological, existential desire and what it is that we are responding to, whether it's purely a fabulation, but then experientially people recurrently mm -hmm. feel it or quest for it, the sort of holy hieroglyph, you know, that sort of notion that there is this thing. Um, and you get it within myth. You know, within myth, it's not, a, it's not necessarily an eternal truth. I mean, you're fine, trying to find the Holy Grail, which would be eternal, but the point at which you find it, that's kind of when it ends, because you can never really reveal what it is, you know. But there's something a slightly lesser but abiding element within myth, which is that experience which is continuous of being a human in the world and questing. So, I mean, I wouldn't say that's an eternal truth, but certainly within the circumscribed remit of human life, that's something that pervades these mythical, you know, these perpetual reiterations of that journey through life that you get in myth. So that might be a way to, as you're saying, you're trying to talk about a truth other than these very relative, you know, all is fleeting, all is nothing kind of... Okay, that's okay. Let me try and connect that with what I. So sort of the same question to you, Barry, but let me inflect it a bit with what Joanna said. So, if we set aside mathematical truths for a moment as contenders for eternal truth, just set aside maths for a moment. What about the idea, like you know, in mythology, or I was thinking even in proverbs. So the proverb, even proverbial knowledge. You know, life has its ups and downs. We take a phrase like that. Can we say something like that is eternally true? You know, or we, take, we could take kind of myths that uh, Joanna's talking about, you know, like the myth of life as a journey. You know, is, it, is it kind of eternally true that our lives are effectively journeys? You know, or is that merely a description that we use these days? So let's try and come at the question through maybe other discourses, other language, other than the mathematical. Is it eternally true to say that life has its ups and downs? No. Um, I, so, so, so I think... Uh, you're getting at two different things. Is it always endlessly appealing to us to have certain tales or myths that, that will appeal to us and that we will return to? Probably yes. Does that mean there's something uh, eternal? I mean, remember, eternity is not just a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's eternity, right? Yes. So, so not just for Christmas. It's no. not just for Christmas, and it's not just you and me. So, but but so, so so I think there's the the appeal to something's recurring, and the, the more they recur, the more we think we're getting a feel of something that might be true and that we might latch onto and hold onto, and the question is whether we are. I, I wasn't quite sure what you meant about it's all metaphorical for maths, but we're going to leave maths, but I don't know what that means. Well, I mean, it's all, I mean, Wittgenstein, etc. phrases about language, and it's funny that maths kind of, you know, within the, the great sort of paradoxical early 20th century debate, you know, we're, 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 there's that notion that, well, it's all right if we could just make language a bit more like maths, it would all be fine. But, you know, to me, I mean, I'm a, you know, a poetic language. Yeah, we can see it's metaphorical, but Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, et cetera, has never been a good argument for me. I, I need to know what Wittgenstein, et cetera, means. And he would have said, when you say Wittgenstein, et cetera, you mean no more than Wittgenstein, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, so, Wittgenstein, so, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, so I'm sticking. That I'm sticking with that. That doesn't, yeah. do, that doesn't do any work. <laughs> but, um, well, it doesn't for you, but it does for me. I mean, Wittgenstein so and tell those us what work, tell us what work friends, it does you know, for you. his pals, What work does it do for you? Russell was pretty good on the idea of math. Mathematics having a kind no, of no, that's what I'm saying. They grounding. loved. I mean, they're all really quite venerated. I mean, that, that's the thing. And they, you know, that's why I thought of it when you were saying they're sort of 
you know, this veneration of maths is to me yeah, intriguing. But, but, but look, uh, there's something to get at as to why that is. And it's, I think it's often missed in the philosophy of maths, but it's important. It's not that, oh, you know, we can get at maths, that's, that's pretty objectively certain, and then thinking Cartesian-like, if we could make everything else as certain as that, we're on, we're on the money. Later, certainly from sort of Russell Wittgenstein onwards, it became more interesting because it became, as, as Robert said, compelling, compelling to us to see that two and two equals four, to see that Pythagoras' theorem is true. But we didn't know what it was true about. So we're in a funny position. We're sure we've got hold of truths, but we don't know what they're truths of because they don't seem to be facts about the world. When you talk about numbers, these are not things you bump into or spill your coffee on, so what can they be? Now, but do you the, think the, every the, well, society let, would let, have let me, numbers? Well, when you finish every, that every bit, human has every human every has, human society would then have to have numbers. Uh, I don't know whether you mean numeral words or, or mathematical cognition, but there's lots of evidence. Either, that either both. Yes, the, yes, like. the mathematical cognition. We know that. We know that. That's pretty good. Animals have got it too. But, but what look, about the, the Paraha, what, 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 Daniel Everett. Paraha are people who don't book. have um, who don't have any evidence in their language of a certain kind of recursivity, but it doesn't mean they can't acquire it. So that means nothing. Well, I, think, I think actually okay, we're, we're, no, no, but I think, yeah, I think we're going down a track. Right, can, yeah. can I come back yeah. to the main point I wanted to make, which is mathematics is, is fascinating because we feel we've got on to truths and we don't know what they're about. And, and the temptation is to think they're about an abstract eternal realm that's outside space and time, a platonic realm, and now the question is, well, how could we ever get to know about that, given that we're not in touch with it? And the only answer seems to be because we've got a language in which we can prove things about it. And now, on that model, the question is, are there other ways we could reach a priori truths, not just about mathematics? And I think philosophy's in danger, and has been through, through history, of taking things which seem self-evident and assuming that that's a guide to truth. What was self-evident is now false. What was once seen as very compelling because it was so familiar made us think it couldn't be otherwise. But modern science has shown us it can be otherwise. I'm going to bring you in, Stanley, but I want to I want add to in the next bit of the question. Directly to that. You right. can, but I want you to pick up as well this notion now which we're touching on of relativism. So a way into this would be to say, if you answer four to the question, what's two plus two, is that just your opinion? No, <laughs> but I'm not sure that that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is, oh, yeah. within, you know, uh, within the conventions of discourse that we now operate in in, uh, in, in, in the field uh, of mathematics or in everyday mathematics, the, the answer to that um, um, is uh, the answer that Two and two or four is absolutely persuasive. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of his uh, third book of his rhetoric, Aristotle laments the uh, uh, necessity of descending to such a disreputable topic. Uh, that is, descending to a study of the way in which words influence people to believe or disbelieve things. Uh, and then he says, at the he says however, we must, we must teach this disreputable art because of the defects of our hearers, by which he means human beings who are likely to be impressed by the wrong thing. And then he ends the paragraph by saying, no one needs to use fine language 
when teaching geometry. Some hundreds of years later, Thomas Hobbes, the smartest political philosopher that ever lived, uh, said, said of geometry that it has not yet been disputed because it has not yet crossed any man's ambitions. So what uh, Hobbes was saying is that even those things that we take to be indisputably and formally true could be challenged um, in, in a context that we have not yet arrived at and in a context in which was what was undoubted now becomes the object of argument and controversy. And his thesis, and I'm certainly a partisan of it, is that nothing, there's nothing that cannot become the object of argument and controversy, which is why we must set up a sovereign to stop it all and keep <laughs> it in check. Mm. And I agree with that, too. Theme two. So let's pick up this question. I mean, there's nothing that can't be subject to dispute, Aristotle. Hobbes, as we know, say, Hobbes, the Hobbesian answer is, yes, well, if that's the case, we impose, in Hobbes's case, a sovereign. Um, Joanna, what about then this, this, you know, this old chestnut of a question about relativism, truth, relativism? We've got to touch, we've touched on it a bit here. Um, and the particular angle, I think, to touch on in this debate is, look, if, if everything is relative, therefore, is everything permitted? You know, are there any limits? And uh, clearly, that's not just a linguistic or a philosophical question, that's a moral question, too. So help us with this. How do we get yes. our heads around it? Yes. So um, I think it's a bit like, say you had a street. Let's think of a street. And it's, maybe it's a nice street in London, those streets with those townhouses. And as Southern, it's Soho, let's call it Soho. And there's a, there's a kind of club. There's a club you go into and you know, it has these rules and you have to wear a purple blazer and you have to eat cheese. And you go in and you wear the purple blazer and you eat cheese and that's all really good fun and you're in that club. Next door there's a club where you wear a green blazer, you're not allowed to eat cheese, you, you, know, you have to eat eggs instead. You could go on and on, series of clubs, series of streets. In each club this process is totally meaningful. It's completely fine, as long as no one is having a really bad time. There's, no, there's not an edict where you know, someone has to be smacked in the face every time they try not to eat cheese. You know, it's, as long as the club is a kind of tolerant, reasonable space where people, you know, they subscribe to the basic rules, but you know, they're not going to be sort of massively penalised for demurral. You know, that, I think that, this, once you dispense with the notion that there's an absolute club, you know, which is the real uh, definitive, eternal club. You can have this series of these in which you know, the meaning is completely purposeful in each place, but I think it doesn't necessarily have to be this. Again, it's this sort of notion that once you demur from the notion of eternality, you're kind of in this renegade position where anything goes and people can run amok and they can do whatever they like. I think, again, that in itself is a sort of game with language. It sets up a simple opposition. Um, okay, yes, just wait your turn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, would it, okay, yes, so I you've made a kind of chicane, yeah. really, between the absolute and the relative. And you said, actually, different worlds can be absolute in their own right, even, though, even if there's more than one world, essentially. So, Barry, yes. I think you wanted to challenge? Yeah, that's not relativism at all. Um, that's absolutism. But why are you... I it's interesting you have this category, Lips though. moving, still talking. So, <laughs> so, um, Barry, Barry, Barry. No, 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 Jana, no, no. We'll let, Jana, we'll let Barry you've got yeah. to let me respond to that. So you're saying, look, absolutism is banned because there's no absolute club that dictates what blazer you wear or what food you eat. Right, but that's not what 
Well, that's not the only version of absolutism. There's an absolute fact about what you should do in each club. There's an absolute fact, not relativized, about what you do if you're in the purple blazer club and if you're in the green blazer club. So while if you're in those clubs, you do what the prevailing rules tell you to do, that's contextualism. That's what's true relative to that context, and something else will be good or advisable or true relative to another context. But there's always a statement about what's absolutely right to do or say or true given the context you're in relative to the rules that prevail there. So that's absolutism. No relativism about truth here. I would go further. I agree with what Barry once said. And I would say that relativism um, is, is a position in philosophical arguments. Relativism um, is not a, a recipe for living, nor could it be because relativism would require that you hold your own views in an indifferent mix relative to others. And no one of us has ever been able to or has ever desired uh, to do that. So all of the dilemmas that attend the word relativism are dilemmas that occur only in philosophy seminars. That's where they get their lives. But once you step out of the philosophy seminar into any rich context of socially organized life, uh, just as both of you have said, uh, there are sets of conventions, rules, protocols, lists of honorable things to do, things you don't do, things that belong in some other shop, um, as it were, so that again, no one in the history of the world has ever been or could be a relativist, although you could in answer to certain traditional philosophical questions, epistemological questions about evidence and truth, give a series of answers that would brand you as a relativist within those identifications in philosophy. But that's quite a different thing. Theme three. Okay, so uh, final question um, before we open it up to you guys. And uh, so the question I've got written on the piece of paper here is, look, theme three, do we still need to pursue eternal truth? When I read this question, I thought, well, yeah, well, we probably do. But, you know, there feels something a little bit anachronistic about it now. It feels like an old-fashioned question. That was my initial reaction to this. I want to know what the reaction of the panel is. Stanley, can I start with you? Do we still... I know you've taken us down slightly different route in what you've said so far. Is it still a good thing to pursue, this idea of eternal truth? Is it relevant? Is it useful? Helpful? Well, uh, to respond in, in the context of a, a panel earlier this, this today, the question was a, a related one. Why, in a world of culturally disparate values, do we, are we still wedded to our moral convictions? And the answer to that is the one I gave a few moments ago, because we believe our moral convictions to be true, else they would not be our moral convictions. Now, therefore, we are always, when we make statements, making statements and predications or arguments with a universal ambition, the ambition to be universally true. And as I noted before, the answers that we give in this quest can change. But the object of the quest, which is to find and identify the eternal truth never changes. So that I don't think that we could, we could, we could disengage uh, from this quest without disengaging uh, from, the, con uh, from uh, the conviction of our positions, and I don't think we right. could do that. So the ambition to be eternal is eternal, even if the object of the ambition is passing. Yes, exactly okay. right. 
Joanna. Again, again, I should have let you answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say, I think insofar as there, there is no ultimate glittering total prize that we're going to kind of pluck, you know, that, that notion that you're going to get the grail, and then what is the grail, and do you even want the grail? Um, I think that's a critical aspect. I'd say, so, however, within what we have, there are these, these extraordinary contingent and experiential realities that I think, you know, all being confusion, we accept as exceptionally important and, although tenuous and though fleeting, totally integral to what we do and how we treat others. And there's a commonality in this, that we're all... So the idea that you elevate one truth above all others and you try and contest it and you, you, know, you fight wars for it and you treat people badly because of it, I think that's kind of, in a way, missing the general notion that we're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. And there's a commonality within that that is, I think, in a sense, if we're going to talk about truth, that's the odd truth of everything, which is that we're all here in this bizarre moment and we all have this strange way of communicating, despite these very um, relative linguistic terms that are sometimes used. There is a kind of constant communication that I think is beautiful and kind of the point as I understand it. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And I'd say that even as someone who is as uh, determined a, a seeker of the eternal as Milton, uh, he was throughout his life drawn to the very, what we might call, surfaces that he was trying to transcend. So much so that a great British critic once said of Milton, I think this is absolutely true, was E.M.W. Tilliard said of Milton, if Milton had been placed in the Garden of Eden, he would have eaten the apple immediately and written a pamphlet to justify it. Yeah. <laughs> very true. Uh, Barry, help us. What's your view? Is it still a good question to pursue about eternal truth, or we beyond that there are better questions? Beyond that, there might be better questions. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with Joanna. I think that that striving oh, Barry, and searching, that striving and searching, <laughs> and the feeling that we share and that we're communicating purposefully, and that nonetheless we are relying on deeply subjective, fleeting uh, experiences of our own but in the hope that somehow others can reach that or understand what, what that's about. I think that's, that's, that's true. And I would say that that's right, but trying to diagnose what it is we're after when we go in search of the eternal, when we want something more, I think it's, I mean, and we may always fail, but it, it's, we, want, we want to get the right answer. We want not to be fooled. We want not to be taken in. We not, want not to be persuaded by other people's uh, bad reasoning and argument or their slippery ways of, of convincing of something that's, that's false. And it's interesting, even people who don't believe that the notion of truth does any work are very sincere when they tell you that. There's a deep truth they're trying to get at when they tell you that truth is relative or truth cannot be attained. They're trying to get you to believe something. That's the notion of truthfulness in the telling. And I think we also ought to be careful not to think that uh, what is most lasting and powerful and important will always be said in some neutral, abstract, mathematical way. Bernard Williams said something that was deeply impressive. He said, every now and then in a very contested discussion or debate or argument, you hear something that speaks with the voice of reason. And he said, the voice of reason always speaks with an accent, always speaks from a particular place in history always comes from a certain point of view. 
but when you hear it, you recognize it's the voice of reason. And I think that's what we're after. Mm. As you were talking, I was also wondering if an equally good question would be, are there any lies that are eternal as well? And maybe, that's, uh, maybe we can ponder that. So with that, uh, will you join me in thanking uh, Stanley Fish, Joanna Kavena, Barry Smith. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.